we're on the topic of miracles. It, it started because Martha said, have you, Martha Burst here, he thought about doing a series on miracles, and then I had wanted to read this book by Lee Strobel called A Case for Miracles. We're actually not preaching the book. We're preaching the Word of God, but it it's, has a lot of great stories in it. And, you know, who couldn't use some miracles? I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody here that says, I've had way too many. I don't want any more. Uh, you can have mine. We all could use some extra miracles. There are some people that believe that uh, signs, wonders, and miracles have passed away. Uh, but the Bible doesn't say that. That's the strategies and ideas and theories of men. And part of it comes from, honestly, from our, our own horrible experiences when we pray or do things and we fail. And so we say, I feel awful being a failure. Uh, so let's just come up with a different strategy. Or if this really was around, why doesn't it happen more frequently? But if you remember, we've already seen the disciples were failing with regularity as they tried to pray for people, minister to people. And, and they got corrected and rebuked by Jesus. And uh, I just kind of picture, I don't know if Jesus would roll his eyes, but I just kind of picture like, oh, you know, again, we're on this again. And they didn't quit. They just kept pressing on and pressing on, saying, we're going to grow, we're going to grow, we're going to get better, we're going to get better, we're going to trust God for these things. And so there are some that believe they've passed away. Um, if, if you're full-blown, dis, what's called dispensationalist, it means that, that you believe God did little seasons of things, and when the season was over, it was over. There's some truth that God does do things in, in seasons and impacts in different ways. So the theory is um, the church, the early church, Christianity needed signs, wonders, and miracles because it was just getting established. It needed to be validated. It needed to not be seen as just another religion, just another cult out there coming on the scene. So God was going to pour out signs, wonders, miracles, power of the Holy Spirit, you know, all kinds of crazy, wonderful, amazing things so that people go, wow, this is the real deal. This church is valid. It's legitimate. Everything they're saying is true. But after 40, 50, 60 years, they stopped happening because the church was already established. I don't know, but I can look around the globe and say the church could be more established. You know, I think we could, you know, take some more ground for Jesus. And so I, I don't believe that primarily because the Bible never says that. I, I can't find any place in the Bible where it says this was just a season. It's over. It's done. That's our own theories and thoughts on this. So Let's believe for miracles. Now, if you think it's done and it's over with, you won't have any faith for them because you'll just assume they're done and over with, but they're not. And this guy that wrote Case for Miracles, uh, Lee Strobel, I'm glad he wrote it. He's not a, a Pentecostal or charismatic, and I, I say that not because I'm opposed to Pentecostal or charismatics, but if a prominent Pentecostal or charismatic would have written the book, The Case for Miracles, they would have said, oh, that's what those crazy people think. Lee Strobel was an atheist. His wife fooled around and got saved. He spent two years of his life trying to crush the resurrection because he was told by a guy at work, he was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, he was told by a guy at work, everything hinges on the resurrection. And so if you crush that, it's done. And Paul said that, Paul the Apostle, hey, if there was no resurrection, let's pack it up and go home. And so he said, I'm going to crush the resurrection, I'm going to show my wife through common sense, logic, you know, science, everything, that Christianity is not real. But he's not like some people. You'll meet some people and share your face and say, I don't believe in Christianity. Why? I heard a podcast one time. It wasn't true. Well, I didn't listen to the whole podcast, but I listened to part of it. And so I don't believe. This guy spent two years of his life and a lot of money out of his own pocket flying around the world in different places to interview people and look at the evidence and talk to scholars and the brilliant on both sides of the fence because he's an investigative journalist. At the end of it, he declared what everybody who seems to declare when they really study it, Christ is risen from the dead. Christ is risen. He gave his heart to Jesus Christ. He took a job at church. He, I, I heard him say this. He took a job at a church and left 
He took a 60% pay cut to take a job in a church, has been ministering to people ever since. So anything in that book, you can be sure of, isn't just, I kind of heard one time that maybe this might have happened and, and it made it to the book. No, this got investigated, this got interviewed, this got checked out, this, everything in the book. So I would encourage you to read it. Uh, read it to the end because he deals with the skeptics at first, and they have some good points. But he brings it all the way through, so don't stop and become a skeptic. I, I read the first five chapters, I don't believe either. <laughs> no, keep reading, and you'll get the truth of God's Word and the truth of science and the truth of, of brilliant thinkers on this, on this topic. So uh, he's a skeptical guy. I'm, I, got a skept, I tend to have a skeptical mind. Now, not, not cynical. Not, I'm not rock hard and doubt and unbelief. Lee Strobel asked one person, said, what would it take? What would you have to see that would validate miracles for you? And he said, there's nothing you could ever show me that would make me believe. Well, then you're just already rock hard, solid unbeliever. You know, you're not going to believe in anything. If, if that's your answer, well, I'm not even close to that. I believe. It's just when you come to me and say, hey, you know, I got a friend who's got a cousin in Australia who has a neighbor whose cousin, you know, met Jesus and he is riding a white unicorn. Uh, I'm going to say I'm skeptical. I don't believe. I'm 99, no, I'm not 99, I'm 100% sure that Jesus didn't come riding into their yard on a unicorn. So you don't have to believe everything. So I have a little bit of a skeptical mind, but I follow logic too. Because listen to this, there's a gal that some of you have been around church here for a long time, no, Shirley Sammons. Shirley Sammons, I don't think she's actually a founding member, but she was early on. Her and Barney were very instrumental in this church, wonderful woman of God. She's the type of person that people say, if anyone went to heaven, it would have been Shirley Sammons. But Shirley Sammons would say, I'm going to heaven because of Jesus, not because of my goodness. But she was a good, awesome prayer warrior and uh, loved the Lord. And many years after I knew her, she told me that Jesus came and visited her. Not a dream, not a vision. Jesus visited her. And guess what? I believed her. I said, well, I thought you were a skeptic. No, well, I also have some logic to me. Shirley is a wonderful woman of God could serve the Lord many, many years, most of her life. She was not a liar. She did not exaggerate. There was no motive for her to tell that story. She wasn't trying to vie for some position or power and let me know that she's a woman of God like no other woman you've ever seen because she is super humble. She's the gal, if you've heard me say this before, she told Darlene and I that she had prayed for us and our family every day since we'd started pastoring here. And this is many years into it. I went, wow, I don't think I pray every day for us. You know, you pray for us more than I pray for us. And so that just blew me away. So one day I said, Shirley has prayed for us every day. And she raised her hand. By the way, this isn't the way I like to do church. Just, hey, does anybody want to say something? But it was Shirley. So I said, Shirley, do you want to say something? She said, yes. I was in the hospital last year. In a couple of days, I was kind of out of my head. I don't think I prayed for you. And I said, okay, well, we'll... She was so concerned to be totally honest, that be totally legit, and that she didn't get any glory that she shouldn't have. And we said, Shirley, we'll give you those couple days when you were on medication uh, that you didn't pray for us. So I believed her because I believe that God still does what God does. I believe in signs and wonders and miracles and healings. And I believe even, even Lee Strobel gets into the, in his book about dreams and visions, which he said that stretched him a long way. Uh, but he started meeting people and seeing people and hearing accounts and verifying them. He said, wow, people have had dreams and visions. Which high percentage of visions are happening in the Muslim community around the world. They have a, a dream or a vision. And, and if you remember, when Jesus encountered Saul on the road to Damascus, which later we call Paul, the apostle, he told, he, 
Jesus did not lead him to himself. He actually said, go to the city, go to Straight Street. You'll meet a man named Ananias, and he will tell you wonderful words of life. And so in these dreams, these people, and he, he went and interviewed these folks, and uh, they would be walking down the street. This Muslim person would say, it, it's you, it's you. And they'd run up to him and say, what do you mean it's me? And they'd be believers. And they'd say, God told me in a dream, Jesus did. Uh, they recognized it was Jesus. And it said it was different than any other dreams. It wasn't just a normal dream. It was super vivid, super powerful. And they'd say that you would tell me about Jesus. And they would tell them about Jesus. So it's, it, God, I just think it's crazy we try to limit God and just say, well, well, he wouldn't do that. I don't know. Why, why not? So he's, he's on the move. We just need to, I don't even know if we can catch up with him, but we at least need to try to stay in pace with what God is up to. So there's all these wonderful things that God is doing. And when we look and see the power moves of God, we see that in Scripture. We see it in other people's lives. And I'm going to guess that most people in this room, if not everyone in this room, have encountered something that showed the power of God, whether it was a salvation of yourself or a loved one, uh, getting resources right when you needed it, a breakthrough when you needed it, deliverance, healing, whatever. And, and you can say, well, I think there's other times I didn't get. That's okay. Let's thank God for what we did get, and let's keep believing for more. And there's, there's always growing that we can do in this. So as, as we think about the power of God, the, the first time I remember having an encounter with God, and I, I might have had one earlier than that. Before I tell that story, I want to say this. People can tell you all kinds of things, but it doesn't mean it's true. So you should pray, and you should seek the Lord, see if it lines up with Scripture, and see if it, it, it bears, kind of churchy way, say it bears witness with your spirit of what God's doing. You don't have to believe everything people tell you. We had a gentleman here many years ago, that nice guy, got along great with him, but he was, he was very hungry, uh, very hungry for power and position. You can take that slide off of there. Um, very hungry for power and position, and he always wanted like the pulpit and up front and be the front person, and um, he would come to me with dreams that he said God gave him. And so one day he came to me and he said, uh, he said, Tracy, he said, God gave me a dream. I said, okay, what was it? He said, I was in the pulpit, and I was leading and ministering in the church and pretty much became the primary leader of Crossroads Community Church. I said, okay. He said, now, he was real nice. He said, I didn't displace you. You were still seated back behind, you know, on the back wall there. You got a lot of churches, they would do that. It's still some bigger church. You'll see the staff up there sitting on the platform. And so, you know, thank God he didn't get rid of me. He just, uh, you know, I still had something going on. Then he came to me a month or so later and said, hey, I had a, another dream from the Lord, and I said, okay, well, what was it? And he said, I'm driving a semi, like 50-plus feet of goods for, for crossroads, healing, signs, wonders, miracles, blessings, everything you can think of. I'm so excited to get this to deliver to the people of crossroads. And this, this SUV pulls out in front of me. It's a nice new little SUV. It was functional in its own right, he told me, because he wanted me to know this was an okay vehicle, just wasn't what he had. And he said, it was stopping me and blocking me from getting to the church. And so I prayed and said, Lord, why, why, why will that guy not get out of my way? And the Lord spoke to him and said, unless the guy driving that vehicle gets out of your way, you cannot deliver all these wonderful blessings to the church. And he said, Tracy, when I looked close, it was you driving that vehicle. Okay, yeah. So I, I tried to be as gentle as possible. And I said, I said, brother, do you, ever, do you ever notice that your dreams are always, you're the person with the goods. You're the one with the power. You're the one with the anointing. You're the one with everything. And if I would just get out of your way, 
man, what a transformation could happen. And, and not just me, probably, but other people as well. Just get out of his way. And so I said, and by the way, we're having a kind conversation. I said, as kindly as I could, I said, brother, because obviously he had stuff he needed to work out in his life. And I think if he would have stayed here, he would have worked it out. I, I got to say, for Crossroads folks, we're pretty patient, loving people to work people through stuff. You know what I mean? It's not like, well, you know, you got stuff to work on, you can go somewhere else, or we'll ignore you. No, we'll, we'll help. But he, I told him as gently as I could, I said, brother, I said, first of all, our church constitution isn't designed. I can even get up and say, hey, brother so-and-so had a dream. I believe it. He's, he's the new leader. I'm stepping down. And I said, which it shouldn't be designed like that. The constitution shouldn't work like that. So I said, I couldn't even do that if I wanted to, even if I believed that you were right. But I said, I don't believe that. I said, if you were a leader here, I said, we'd be less than 20 people in 90 days, which was actually being generous, but I was trying to take a little sting off. Well, that hurt his feelings, just like it would if somebody said that to you. And I just don't know how to get around it. You know, at some point before he has five more dreams, I'm going to have to deal with this. And so I said, uh, we'd be less than 20 people. Well, that hurt his feelings, so he began to prophesy. Now, if you've never been around Pentecostal or charismatic churches, um, when you prophesy, you're speaking a word from the Lord. And, and that's legitimate. I, I believe that can happen. Absolutely, 100%. But... It's also interesting, I'm not making fun of this, I'm just telling you historically how it used to be. It used to be, I'm not so sure it's this way anymore, but it used to be, you, you generally start out your phrase like this when you were given a word from the Lord, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Now that was the key phrase, or at least thus saith the Lord. And so he said, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Now there's another odd thing that happens, it used to, I don't know if it still does, and again, I'm really not making fun of it, so it's just kind of the culture, and uh, you would always break into to King James English when you prophesied, that series. He said, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as thou hast spoken, it shall come upon your own head. In 90 days, this church will be less than 20 people. And I said, okay. And I oddly had a calendar, a blotter calendar on my desk. And it was one of those things where each month was on there. So I marked off 90 days and I said, brother, I said, at the end of 90 days, it's this particular Sunday and I want you to be here. And I said, and... If there's less than 20 people, I will bring you forward and acknowledge you as a genuine prophet of God. I said, if, it's, if there are more than 20 people here, at the end of the service when we're praying, I'm not going to ask you to say anything. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to say nothing. But I want you to come to the altar and repent for saying, thus saith the Lord when the Lord did not say. And I said, no one will know why you're up there. I'm not going to say anything about it. It's just you'll be your chance to say, Lord, I'm sorry that I told Tracy that you said this when you did not. Now, I do want you to know the last time I ever saw the guy. Never, I never, I don't even know if I ran into him just accidentally around the community. So, moral of the story is you don't have to believe everything somebody says. You don't have, well, they said, thus saith the Lord. So, there were people in the Old Testament said, thus saith the Lord. There's two, two types of people. One was those who said, thus saith the Lord, knowing the Lord did not speak. And guess what? The Old Testament rule was for them. You stone them to death. When somebody says, thus saith the Lord, and they know thus the Lord didn't say it, and they're just trying to manipulate you, stone them to death. Those who say, thus saith the Lord, who had sincere, pure hearts, but are wrong, it said you just ignore them. You, you don't have to kill them. You can just ignore them. And uh, we all need to thank God we're under the new covenant, because uh, there'd be a lot of people getting killed. Guess what you're supposed to do with your rebellious kid in the Old Testament? They just repeatedly will not obey. You're to drag him outside the city and stone him to death. 
wow, the congregation would be less than 20 if that really would happened, you know, if, if, if all of us who had been rebellious to our parents were drug out and stoned to death. Or, after you watch one of those stonings, you might become a very obedient child. I'm not sure how that would work. So, <laughs> let's try one. <laughs> Strike that from the recording. Uh, <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, we've experienced the power of God. You have experienced it in some different way, some form or fashion. And we want to keep building our faith for more and more of that. And don't even have to be for ourselves, for others that we pray for or minister to or, or whatever. I remember the first time that I actually remember, it might have been previous to that, but the first time I remember uh, a touch from God, I was probably about 12 years old, and I just got done playing summer baseball. Now, how many of you have played as a kid summer baseball or summer softball? Raise your hand up high. Okay. Bunch of us. Didn't matter whether we were good or not. Everybody got out there. I mean, you could hit the ball and run to third base, and everybody would cheer you on. So uh, I came home that night, and I went up to my bedroom, and man, I had blown out my knee. It was my right knee, and I went to lift up my foot to take off my shoe, but I couldn't lift up my foot. It hurt so bad. And so I reached down, untied my shoe, took it off, and pulled my leg up into bed. And then I, I prayed. I said, Lord Jesus, I said, would you heal my knee? And I'm just telling you, God's, this is not the main way God works, but God will meet us wherever we're at, some, sometimes, not always, because faith and belief, we're going to see from the Word of God, is really the currency of heaven. But he'll work with knuckleheads too. So I was uh, there, and I said, please heal my knee. And then I thought, I need to move my leg to see if he did it. And then I thought, I know he didn't, so then I'm going to be disappointed. I thought, well, I have to move it. So I moved it real slow. And the next thought of faith, and I say it sarcastically, that came out of my mouth was, I just moved it too slow. That's why I didn't feel the pain. And then I started to move it, and I was instantly, absolutely instantly healed. Instantly, just like that. And by the way, as you noticed, with no faith or belief, or very little anyway, I guess I hadn't mustered up enough faith to say the prayer at least. And so, but God was training and teaching and showing us things. You might have had experiences like that too. And there's, there's something, a, a saying I heard one time, it's, it's true within biblical limits, but it's a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. A person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. So you could come to me and give me a six-part journal that you've written on why God doesn't heal anymore and why that can't be done and God doesn't do miracles, but it's too late for me. I've already experienced it. It's too late. My experience overrides your volumes of books that you've written against it. So I'm done. But it is within biblical limits. Again, you know, if you tell me that Jesus came riding in on a magic carpet into your living room and told you the true way to be saved is to eat frosted flakes, which some of you would be happy with, to eat frosted flakes, I would say, no, you did not have a true visitation from Jesus because that violates Scripture. Scripture is always, to me, the ultimate authority. But if you experience something, it's real hard for people to convince you that God doesn't do that. So today we're going to talk about faith versus doubt. Faith versus doubt. Even like the little graphic there. You know, let's let faith erase doubt. The only thing probably I'd do different is I'd say let's ink in our faith. So I'd probably use an ink pen with an eraser on let's, let's ink in our faith. Let's erase our doubts. And when we look at Scripture, we find out this, that Jesus never encourages people to doubt. Did you notice that? He, I never saw one time him go to somebody and say, you know what, you're just, you're just believing too much. You've got too much faith. 
you need to back it off a little bit. You need to step down a little. But he is always telling people, isn't he? He's always telling people, why did you doubt? Why don't you believe? Have more faith. He corrects us, instructs us. Don't let it discourage you. He corrects, corrects and instructs. The Bible says that the son whom the father loves, he instructs, he disciplines, he corrects. And so as we get corrected, that's okay. And he also never says, you know, these things that I'm doing, guys, he said, these aren't for you. Don't try this at home. You know, this is for, this is son of God kind of stuff. He never actually says that. What he does actually say is, you can do it. Now, some people say, well, you got to look at the audience they speak into, see if that applies to you. That's good. That's true. Nothing wrong with that. So you see, Jesus takes 12 people, his 12 disciples. He said, I want you to go out. And I want you, this is what their assignment was. Go heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, cure leprosy, and preach or proclaim the message of the kingdom. Now you say, well, that was just for those 12. But then he grabs 70 more. And he says, now I want to send you out two by two to do the same thing. And they go out and do the same thing. And the Bible says they came back with joy. And they said, even demons are subject to us in your name. And you say, well, that was just for the 70. Well, you can keep saying, well, that. But then Jesus says, let me tell you something. Anyone, everyone who believes the things that I have been doing, they will do an even greater things than these because I go to the Father and send the power of the Holy Spirit. You can read that in John 14, 15, and 16, the Gospel of John. And so it isn't just for, you know, a certain group of people. It's, it's for all of us, for all of us. Sometimes it's spectacular when it happens. Sometimes it's not. Most of the time in my life, it is not things, there isn't something happened that was spectacular. I've told some of these stories probably all before. I remember we were in a small group one time, and, and somebody said, my, I think it was the grandma, had not heard from their grandson who was in prison for months, and he used to call like once or twice a week, and she was all concerned. And they said, Tracy, will you pray? And so I just prayed a prayer kind of like I'm praying now. I didn't say, Father God, in the name of Jesus. I, so I just prayed kind of a calm prayer. And uh, this guy told me this. He came back to me later. And he said, oh, my gosh, you prayed that prayer. The next day, he called Grandma. But I want to tell you this. When you prayed that prayer, I want to tell you what I was actually thinking. Well, that prayer is really going to move heaven. You know, so because we get conditioned. Man, get loud, make a lot of noise. I don't mind if you get loud, make a lot of noise. It might be your personality. I have zero problem with that. But I'm saying we start doing something, it needs to be longer, it needs to be louder, you need to kick into Old English, you need to do something. No, you, you need to tap God. We need to be praying in faith. There was a person in a car wreck, and they were in a hospital. We got a, got a call from someone. The other person in the car had been killed, and somebody called us that knew this guy and said, go pray for him. I said, okay, I'll go pray for him. And I said, darling, you want to come? She said, no, I don't want to come. She said, bring somebody else, train them, equip them. And so I turned around to walk away and said, Lord, just told me if I, if I went with you, they'd get healed. Now, I want you to know this. It wasn't because she went, I'm God's woman of power. It's just something the Lord spoke to her heart. So we go there. I've never seen this before. He's in a little bed that they rotate on. If you've never seen it before, I hope you never do. Uh, but the guy's so beat up, and there's all kinds of reasons for this bed. I've only seen it twice in my life. And uh, so we went in, and I found a little piece of his arm to touch, and we prayed for him. As soon as we got prayed for him, I'm not going to say spectacular things didn't happen. As soon as we prayed for him and got done, all kinds of bells and whistles went off that things aren't good. And so the nurses are dashing in and everything. We're like, we didn't do anything, seriously. And, uh, and, uh, and then they said, yes, you did. And I said, I did, and she did. I said, I'm, I'm going home. Call me, call me later. <laughs> and so we encouraged the family, hey, sometimes pray for stuff. Things go haywire. I'm telling you what, it was 
what, two weeks later? That person that they didn't think was going to, that night he came out of the hospital. That night he came off the bed, then he came out of the hospital, and then he was sitting right over there on this front row like two weeks later and came here just to say thank you. Amen. Yeah, you can clap for the Lord uh, to say thank you. So I, I hope he's serving God. or I hope he, hope he took the second chance of life to do something for God. Uh, well, I got all kinds of stories I can tell like that, but that wasn't my goal. But I want you to know, it doesn't have to be spectacular. It doesn't have to be loud. You can say, I don't feel like I'm, you know, I never feel like, it's a rare occasion I feel like, man, if I could just pray for that person, I just do it in faith. God says pray, pray. I have a feeling the 70 that were sent out were probably going, wow, this is kind of crazy assignment. We've never done this before. But then they came back with joy because of what happened by their obedience. So we look at Jesus telling and encouraging us to have faith, to grow, to move forward. And then we look at the life of Jesus, and we see this, this pendulum swing from those who Jesus was amazed at their doubt and unbelief, to those he was amazed at their faith. Now, we're going to start on the negative side first. It says, uh, Mark 6, 1 through 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown. Did you catch that? His hometown, by the way, if you study it out, and uh, for some of you, when I start doing this, your eyes glaze over, just move on. But it's interesting to me. They used to think that uh, it was about 1,000 people or so, but after years of studying, they said it was probably 100 to 150 people his hometown, which makes more sense to me when you study villages like that. And um, maximum size of the town, they say now, they believe would have been 400. So they're in the hometown. You think everybody knows you in the town you live in? Trust me, you live in a town of 125 people. In that day and age, they weren't hopping in cars and driving every way and taking their business out of town. Everything, everything was exchanged right there. Everybody knew everybody. And so Jesus is hometown, accompanied by his disciples, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? You guys probably think that every week, don't you, when you come in here and hear me speak? Okay, just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, I steal ideas from you all and then preach it and then go, wow, God's so good. So where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles, miracles he is performing? So can we all agree from Scripture, they really say he's the real deal. But then they go on and say, isn't this the what? Carpenter. Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother, for those of you who wonder, did Jesus have brothers and sisters? Here's your answer. Isn't he the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they praised the Lord because a small-town boy had risen in the ranks. No, they took offense at him. Now, I've heard this all my life. I've never actually watched it and studied it, but they say it's true that if you put a bunch of crabs in a bucket, when one tries to crawl out, everybody will drag him right back down. I think that was happening to Jesus there. I knew somebody, and they were from a pretty large family, and, and they didn't have a whole lot. They, they weren't destitute, but they didn't have a whole lot. And a lot of the, the other family members didn't get their education or do things, and so... This person decided, hey, you know what? I love my family. Not, they can do whatever they want. I just don't want to be poor all my life. I want to get an education. I want to do something, have a couple things. And so this person began to do that. And please hear me, not in the thing, hey, I have to disassociate with you all or you guys are beneath me. No, you're all living your life. I'm living mine. And one of them told him, said, you just think you're above your raisins. 
In other words, you need to stay down here where we're at. Like the crab pulling them back down. That's why I think the spirit that's on these people. Hey, you don't get to make it like this. And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet's not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. You want to get blown away by a Bible verse? Here it comes. He could not. Catch that? He could not do any miracles there. Hmm? He could not? You mean he, he did not? You mean he got mad and wouldn't? No. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed. Here's the first group of people he got amazed with. He was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed at their lack of faith. The King James says he marveled at their unbelief. So obviously there's something connected between faith and belief. And Jesus was amazed and marveled. It's almost like, oh my guys, I didn't know that you could be this unbelieving. I'm actually staggered and amazed. I didn't know you could have this much lack of faith. And it says he could not. Now there's one of two ways I guess you could look at that. Because none of us like to think Jesus couldn't. But the Bible says he, what? Could not. So either the Lord, the Father told him, don't mess around with this because no one's going to be able to receive. Or he did what we do when we know we can't do something. He tried and it didn't work. Now, again, that blows, oh, there's no way that happened. Why not? That's how we know we can't do stuff. If I stand out in the field and say, I think I can throw a football that road over there. I, I can't, by the way. I would know that after trying to throw it, throw it a few times. And I go, oh, I can't. How do you know you can't? I tried and couldn't do it. Well, I don't know which the answer is here, but I am telling you the Bible says you can look it up multiple versions. You can look it up the Greek. You can look it up whatever you want. And it says that he could not do any miracles there. And then he connects their absolute unbelief to that, their lack of faith. He was amazed at it, amazed at their doubt. And let's not let God be amazed at our doubt. Let's not let God be amazed at our unbelief. Let's not let God be amazed at our lack of faith. Let's turn it around like this guy we're going to read about. Matthew 5, or Matthew 8, 5 through 10, and verse 13. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, it's a little town too, a centurion came to him. Now, I'm going to define a centurion. A centurion is a Roman soldier that's moved his way up through the ranks. He's now in charge of 100 soldiers. It's a pretty prestigious place to be in the military. I want you to catch this. This guy's Roman. He's not Jewish. He's not in the covenant. He's Roman. He's in charge of 100 people, so he knows how authority works. When Jesus entered Capernaum, the centurion came to him asking for help. What's the first word that comes out of centurion's mouth, at least in this story? Lord. What did they call him in his hometown? Carpenter. Carpenter, son, brother. That was the three identifications they gave Jesus in his hometown. So I guess they would say, hey, if I want my roof fixed or I want a, a table made, I'll call you. But otherwise, just get back in your place, Jesus. Carpenter, son, brother. Hmm. This guy calls Jesus Lord. Lord, he says, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now here's a cool line. and we, I know every time I go to this, I mention it. For I myself am a man, what's the next word? Under authority. A man under authority. See, we like to be people in authority. 
but the only way you're in authority is if you're under authority somewhere. Peter could not have uh, gone and put on this centurion's uh, military gear and had any authority. Well, but he's got the centurion outfit on. He's got the centurion stripes. He's got the centurion. Doesn't matter. He's not under. No one recognizes his authority. He can't do that. Somebody up the line, and probably many somebody up the line, identified this guy. This is the man for the job. He's an official centurion. There might have even been a ceremony about it, like there oftentimes is in the military. And so everybody acknowledges, and everybody underneath him, whether they like him or not, know he's in charge. And so he says, for I myself am a man under authority, that's what gave him his power, with soldiers under me, I tell this one. Now, everything, everything about this is, is verbal. I tell or say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say or tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. There's a second amazement. He was amazed. And said to those following him, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now we may rebuy that line, but here's what he's basically saying. In all the covenant people I hung out with, in all the people that go to the synagogue, in all the people that are Jews, all the Israelites I ran into, didn't find one with this kind of faith. I had to go outside the covenant, find a Roman who understood how things work in order to find this kind of faith. You know, the Bible says that the children of this world are wiser in operating in their kingdom than we are in operating in ours. They know, it's a whole story, Jesus tells, how they finagle and they push and they connect and they do this and they do that to get what they want done. And uh, it's actually this is the parable of the shrewd uh, servant. And even the master says, I got to admire you for your shrewdness. So we, we Christians need to understand how does our kingdom work? How does authority work? How do things work? This guy knew it. Now, I'm just going to say this because I thought it might as well make some people mad today, including myself. You say, well, why don't we have a better grasp on the word? Why don't we have a better grasp on how God works? Why don't we have a better grasp on the kingdom? Because we're spending way too much time on Netflix. I'm, I'm serious. We'll say that to ourselves sometimes. We'll go, how much time do we watch TV this week? God, why don't we have faith? Well, you know, you spent, the average American spends about six hours a day in front of a TV set. Wonder what would happen if we spent an hour in the Word or in prayer or in worship or getting to know God. We, we, there was an old preacher that said this one time, said, you're never going to make, he said, sermonettes make Christianettes. I thought, man, that's a good word. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, he said, you got to spend time with God. He said, in this, he called his society modern. We've gone much further than when Tozer was preaching. He said, in this modern society, he said, I don't know how to comfortably and quickly and easily get people to be deepened disciples in Christ. He said, it's going to take time. It's going to take time with God. And we get that on everything else. We understand that. You want to be better at something? Spend time doing it. You want to learn something, you got to spend time doing it. You got to invest, you got to pour time into it, you got to put some energy into it. And so, anyway, I really think the Lord wanted me to say that. I really do think He wanted me to say that. I said, think. I'm saying that only because if it ticked anybody off, just get mad at God. Okay, let's move on. Um, then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. 
what did the centurion believe? The centurion believed if you say it, it'll happen. That's what he believed. And so Jesus said, then so be it. And the servant was healed at that moment. The centurion's faith rested completely in the words of Jesus. Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. The Bible says Jesus is actually called the word in the Gospel of John chapter 1. And then it says the word of God is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, divides asunder soul and spirit, joint and marrow. There's nothing hidden in his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's power in the word. In the Old Testament, God said this, when I speak a word, it happens. He said, when I say something, it, come, it does not come back empty. It doesn't come back unfruitful. It comes back exactly the way I said it. And so there's power in speech. You can see that in the creation of the world in, in Genesis chapter 1. So the folks in Jesus' hometown, he was amazed at their unbelief. The centurion, he was amazed at his faith. And Peter had a moment of say the word faith. Do you remember that? Jesus, Peter and them, he, apparently there's at least two boats there and four of them that are working together. And they fish all night, which is what you do on the Sea of Galilee. You fish at night. They come in, and they're exhausted. And I'll tell you one of the main reasons they're exhausted, not just that they've worked all night, but they've caught nothing. The King James says like this, they toiled, we toiled all night and caught nothing. Now you say, well, that doesn't make people tired. Yeah, it does. Uh, fruitlessness is wearisome. There's all kinds of championship basketball games going on right now. And I thought about this. There's two teams out there, and they're battling to the death. And they're both expending the same amount of energy and the same amount of time this year. And they fight down to the bitter end. One team wins, one team loses. I'll promise you this. Get on the bus of the team that loses, and they're asleep on the way home. Get on the bus on the team that won, that just expended as much energy as that one. They're hooting, hollering, celebrating, cheering, you know, everything. Why? Because there's energy in success, and there's a lack of energy in failure. They've caught nothing. Jesus says, Jesus uses as Peter's boat. This is just, this is my opinion on, on this passage. Jesus uses as Peter's boat. I don't think God's ever our debtor. I, this is what I think. You can do with what you want because it doesn't actually say this. And then when, when he's done speaking, he turns to Peter and says, launch out and cast your nets for a catch. One thing is I believe, I truly believe that Jesus is actually paying Peter for the use of his boat. I'm not, I'm not sponging off of you. You know, you help me, I'll help you. And so Peter says, oh. but listen to his phrase. Read it in, other trans in any translation. It starts out with master. Master. At least he doesn't call him carpenter. Master. Master. We've toiled all night and caught nothing. This, again, is my, my insertion into the text, so I always try to warn you I do it. I picture Peter pausing there for a moment. So Jesus can say, oh, yeah, that's true. I'm sorry. You know, you know, don't worry about it. Because Peter's also and his cohorts have mended the nets, cleaned the nets, packed them up, and they're ready to go crash for a few hours because they fished all night. And so I picture him pausing. We've toiled all night and caught nothing. Jesus, this is your chance to say, oh, yeah, I forgot. You know, go home and catch some, some Zs. But he doesn't. And so he says, nevertheless, at thy word. And he goes out, and in a matter of minutes, they catch two boatloads of fish. They couldn't catch anything all night long. They're fishing at the wrong time of day. They're getting instructions from somebody that's not a, a fisherman. 
and they obey his word and they get paid back with two boatloads of fish. Now, I'm telling you, they left and went home excited. Probably didn't even nap. Probably didn't even go to bed. They're excited. They got two boatloads of fish in a matter of minutes like that because when Jesus speaks, if we'll just say, even if you can sense, read the passage, and you'll sense Peter's absolute weariness when, okay, nevertheless, at your word. God's words matter. They have power. There's a story in uh, Case for Miracles about a gal named Barbara. And Barbara uh, was in high school a gymnast and a flautist and was active like most young people. And she started noticing that she was bumping into walls and she was uh, not able to hold the rings. And so I went and got her diagnosed and they diagnosed her with progressive multiple cirrhosis. So later they took her into Mayo Clinic for a second opinion and they said, yes, that dire diagnosis is correct. And one of the doctors, Dr. Marshall, said the only thing we could do is, is pray for a miracle. Uh, Dr. Uh, Adolph, Harold Adolph, said uh, Barbara was the sickest person he had ever seen. He was a board certified doctor and, and, and surgeon, had done over 25,000 surgeries. So you just know this isn't like the first person this, these people have looked at. And so she's just keeps atrophying, keeps getting worse. And, and she's in the hospital and home and in the hospital and home. She's home when this story's happening. And there's actually oxygen tanks in the uh, garage to feed her oxygen 24-7. By this point, uh, in 1981, she had um, lost all use of a lung, half the use of the other lung. Uh, she lost all control of her bodily function. She had uh, a feeding tube in her stomach. She had a, a trach in her neck. Uh, she had um, lost her eyesight. She, wasn't, she was legally blind. She couldn't read. She could just see gray shapes. Her body had contorted, twisted up like a pretzel. Her fingers were about touching her wrists. Her legs had atrophied. She had, at this point, had not walked for seven years. It had been seven years since she walked. And so some of her friends had called in to the Moody Bible Institute and uh, their radio show and said, would, would you please pray for our friend Barbara? Uh, she needs healed desperately. And so 450 letters actually came to Barbara's home church of people who were praying for her. And so on Pentecost Sunday, 1981, her aunt came over to visit with her in their home by her bed, she was in her parents' home, and uh, read her some of these letters. And then a couple of friends came over and, and started sharing with her. And then uh, there's a little lull in the conversation. And Barbara heard a man's voice, although there's not a man in the room. And this man's voice, very authoritatively and very strong, yet very compassionately said, my child, get up and walk. Well, they could tell she was agitated. And so they came over and put their fingers over the hole in her neck so she could speak. And she said, I know you're going to think this is crazy, but the Lord told me to get up and walk, and I know it was him. She said, quick, go get my family. So she got the family and brought them in there, and she responded to the divine instruction, leaped out of the bed, and took the oxygen off of her. The mother came in, and of course, they're having a meltdown, obviously, of rejoicing and tears. And she said, your legs, your calves, everything. She hadn't walked for seven years, hadn't stood on those legs. And Instantly, her eyesight was back. Uh, she was well. She was whole. She, they, her father, amen. You can clap for that. Amen. Amen. 
her father waltzed her around the room, and then that night, that night, they went to Sunday evening service. And the pastor says, anybody have an announcement? And Barbara came walking down the aisleway. Not six weeks later, six months later, six years later, that night. And, of course, it's their home church, and people knew Barbara's story, and they spontaneously broke into Amazing Grace. And then the next day, she went in to see Dr. Marshall, Dr. Marshall, Dr. Adolph, or her doctors. Dr. Marshall, these are his words. When I saw her walking down the hall, I thought it was an apparition, meaning a ghost or a vision. There's no way that could be Barbara. And Dr. Marshall, Dr. Harold, or Dr. Adolph, uh, checked her out. 100% healed completely in every way, done. And, and 40 years later, it's been over 40 years, she still has had no complications, no setbacks, no anything, nothing from that miraculous touch of Jesus. Jesus still heals today. That was a pretty miraculous one, but it's a wonderful one. Amen. 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 And it was all kind of nevertheless at thy word. I just heard Jesus speak to me. Nobody else heard it, but she did. And apparently she really heard. I mean, that's just so amazing. Dr. Adolph, Dr. Marshall, they examined her and they said this. They said, this is Dr. Adolph speaking. He said, Dr. Marshall and I and Barbara all know who healed her. And they said they were so thrilled to just be a part of seeing God do something so incredible. This is a picture of her here uh, today, healed of progressive multiple cirrhosis in, in 1981. There's a professor at Asbury College who has, I think his name's Keener. He just has volumes of this stuff. He, he's just followed the evidence and went, this is crazy. This is amazing. When, when uh, Lee Strobel pushed him about the sign or about the dreams and visions and said, what about these dreams and visions? Do you really believe in those? And Keener said, absolutely. I've checked them out thoroughly. He said, do they happen very often? He said, I promise you I could call every day and get three to five reports every day of people who have had dreams and visions in the Muslim world uh, to his missionary friends that are over there that are being drawn out and told to come to Jesus. And that's not something you do lightly there. You can lose, in some situations, you lose your life for it, turning to be a Christian. You can lose all kinds of things, and uh, so they don't take it lightly. So you know these are real deal believers. So I chatted with Lee Strobel for a few minutes a couple years ago when he was in town, and he said to me, he said, do you know who believes in miracles in the United States of America more than any other group of people? And I said, no, who? And he said, doctors. See, we would think, oh, they'll, they'll be scientific and rational, and they won't believe in that. But he said, Doctor, they've seen too many. They've seen too much they cannot explain, and they have to believe in miracles. I was hoping he'd say ministers, but he didn't. He didn't say that. He said, he said doctors are the ones that believe in miracles more than any other group of people. So let's erase our doubts and ink in our faith. Let's erase our doubts and ink in our faith. Say, but how? Well, here's some application for you that I'm going to apply and you can apply. Uh, this is just a neat little line to encourage us. Doubt your doubts first. Doubt your doubts first. Quit doubting your faith first. Doubt your doubts. Uh, you're never going to make it. You know what you got to say? I doubt that because God says I'm going over the top. Well, you'll never be well. You'll never get healed. I doubt that because by the stripes of Jesus, I am healed. I just, we just when doubts come your way, just confess the word of God. Doubt your doubts first, not your faith. And keep your head and heart filled with God's word. That's what crushes doubt. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So keep your head and heart filled with God's word. And then practice being what we're supposed to believe. You know what we're called? We're called believers. That's a common thing Christians are called. 
Christians or believers, probably two number one or the number two things, one of two things we're called on planet Earth. Practice being a believer, somebody who believes. It's odd that believers are, I doubt it. I don't think so. Probably not. Highly unlikely. Believers ought to believe. We ought to say, we believe. Let's start believing and trusting God for these things.